Welcome to episode nine of The Venture Roast. I'm here with Britt Daneman. She is a principal at Alpha Edison, one of the premier Silicon Beach venture funds. Good friend from the industry. I'm excited to have on today to chat all things tech and venture. As you know, The Venture Roast was originally a podcast designed around lovingly poking fun at tech and venture, but ended up becoming effectively a forum for all of the best people I know in the industry to come in and talk about what they perceive to be Venture 3.0 and their perception on the state of the world right now. And I'm really excited to have Britt on the podcast this week, and we're looking forward to having her and hearing her thoughts. With that, Britt, I'd love to just get your background and we'll kick off accordingly. Uh, For sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's always fun to chat with you. So happy to do it more publicly. My background is the following. So I grew up in Arizona. Most of my family is still there. So serves as a soft spot in my heart for sure. Then I went to college on the East Coast. I went to Penn. And then my first job out of school, I moved to Boston and I worked for a hedge fund doing later stage investing, distressed and middle market investing. So companies with cash flow and EBITDA, which was great and learned a ton from that experience. I worked with a lot of companies that worked and a lot of companies that didn't. And in one of those experiences, I learned the very detailed inner workings of bankruptcy court. And it became pretty clear to me over time that that wasn't something I really wanted to do with my life. So I went to business school, went to HBS, so moved down the river. And then that's really where I started getting really excited about startups and venture. I worked for a fintech firm up in San Francisco and was also connected with some early employees at Twitter who started their own sort of angel conglomerate called Hashtag Angels. They were all early female employees too, which was very, very cool to see. And then after I graduated, I moved down to LA and helped start Alpha Edison. I joined really as the first employee, if you will, and kind of before we had a name and a ton of money raised. So that was four years ago. Since then, we built out the firm, invested in a bunch of companies and gotten to know not only the LA ecosystem, but also SF and everywhere else. And that leads us to today, I guess. We've really enjoyed getting to know as both a startup, but also personally getting to know both you, Britt, obviously, and as a person and a friend, but also Alpha Edison, because I was mostly spending time as a firm, because I was mostly spending time in San Francisco, really heads down as a deep tech engineer for a while. And then was doing like mostly fintech and tech up in the Bay Area. But you guys are very unique in the sense that you guys go with the companies, you guys invest at the earliest stages, you know, seed, and then invest through sometimes even the growth rounds of these companies. So I'd love to just double tap on Alpha Edison and what you guys look for and also what things are getting you excited. There's lots of opportunities right now with all the volatility around COVID and we'd just love to hear your thoughts on the state of things at the moment. So our sweet spot area is Series A and B, if you will. But you know when people say that, what they really mean is a little bit earlier and a little bit later too, usually, and, and we fall into that category and have done everything as early as pre-seed, but that's frankly really rare. But your point around continuing to support and invest with founders is something we think about a lot and how we manage capital to continue to do. And our LPs are also super supportive. So we've also done some pretty creative things with them directly when a company hits something that is a little bit outside of our fund size. But it's awesome because it creates flexibility. And as you know, in fintech and insurance land, some of these stages kind of mean nothing, right? When people say they're going out for a series A or a seed or a seed two, they mean different things at different times. And we think much more about ability to help support founders rather than sort of funneling it down to what stage you're in, because 
frankly, those change every couple of years, what they're called. I don't think pre-seed existed when I started Adventure, but here we are. And now we're talking about things like seed two and A+. And so we try to fit with where things go in the industry as well. And really, frankly, just try to work with great people more than anything else. That's awesome. I mean, I always used to say, I used to joke about the A- minus round. Mm-hmm. It's because everything gets moved, right? And so we had uh, Nitin Pachisi on in an earlier episode. And Nitin really mentioned, like, it's not really about but the names of it. It's like, what can we accomplish together through this fundraise? Like, where are you at as a company? And where will you be at the end of this fundraise? And like, if we can help you on that journey, like, I don't care what the round is called. Right, exactly. And because things have changed so much over time, and I expect them to continue to change, we think, I guess, more about check size and driving value, I guess, than trying to fit into some sort of definition. I got feedback a couple of weeks ago from uh, some of our peers in the industry that they were listening to the podcast and they were nervous about coming on because like all the interviews are like a conversation amongst friends about what, and they use the word authentic about what they really perceive to be like a cup half full version of the future of this industry. And that includes, you know, I use Silicon Valley as like an overarching term, but you're actually our first interview from somebody who's not based in Silicon Valley proper. Everyone else has been in the Bay Area or was primarily based in the Bay Area before this. And so like the Bay Area has so many problems just beyond when we joke about like all the issues around homelessness or pricing or whatever. But from the frame of Los Angeles and that as a rapidly rising community, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the nature of like what has rapidly become its own venture hub and what problems you guys see there that we don't necessarily see in San Francisco? And what are you excited for in the future of venture that we just don't know from the perspective of San Francisco? Yeah, I'll get to LA, but I want to start with something you said at the beginning of that, which was the conversation here being authentic and amongst friends. First of all, I think it's awesome. as one of the reasons I was excited to do this with you. We have these conversations, you and I, directly. But obviously, one of the big issues in venture generally is that's kind of how things work, right? People who know each other, it's such network-driven business, end up having these conversations. And therefore, you have to be in the know and in the network to really get a sense of what's going on. And if you're not probably some young white guy, it's harder to figure that out. And so... I'm excited to do this with you here because I'd love to share what little I know with others, whether they're in San Francisco or LA or somewhere totally different. You know, the hardest thing for a lot of these people is understanding that so many of these conversations are just happening behind closed doors. And venture is really like this one-to-one relationship. And so like the beauty of a platform like this is that we get to share our experiences. And, you know, in my case, it's been a lot of getting beat down over the years in various startups and funds and sharing that experience with other people because people only see venture capitalists in the press when like a company goes public or, you know, there's like a major legal lawsuit like with Benchmark and Uber. And so to both humanize the industry, but also just to like share that there's other things happening beyond like what you see in the press. And maybe there's some information in here that's useful to you on your journey as a founder or as a venture person coming up in the industry. So I do want to get to your LA question though. Oh yeah, because That's, that's a great topic. I think in general... We are in a pandemic, right? And this period of time has shown to all of us the opportunity to do things remotely and you don't have to be down the street from somebody to get things done, right? I've talked to founders who have had some of their more successful fundraising rounds this way because it saves a lot of time and you 
don't have to run from office to office or fly places, right? And therefore, you probably meet with more and different people than you normally would. There's obviously the other side of that, which is it probably makes it harder to build real meaningful relationships. You really, really have to try to do that. But I have believed for a long time that there would be more opportunities outside of San Francisco as part of the reason I moved to LA was seeing a market that I thought was growing and super interesting. You know, LA graduates more engineers than any other city in the US, which I think is a fun fact. It's just that most of them leave and go to San Francisco or somewhere else. If they only but, knew when they got the degree what they were walking into <laughs> in San Francisco, they wouldn't have left. But, you know, increasingly, even in the four years I've lived in LA, I have this conversation a lot, which is founders moving down or never moving up and seeing with an emerging talent base here and with companies that have raised a lot of money. You know, Snap is a really well-known one and created a lot of buzz, but there are others that have raised a ton of money over the years. And so and not only founder talent and employee talent, but also new funds that have grown in the last five years or so, you know, we are one of many, right? And I think it's even more exciting when there are later, even later than us stage funds that have started to spend more time here. You know, I talked to a, a lot of people who are sort of the quote LA person from their SF fund. And a lot of them are trying to figure out some way to be down here more full time. I think the word you're looking for is insufferable. <laughs> yeah. Your word, not mine. Um, I think there are, there are obviously great things about San Francisco as well. I think just this opportunity we have here during a pandemic, during a social justice movement to pick things up and say, there's talent everywhere and great ideas come from everywhere. But getting access to venture funding and things like that, it's only beneficial to have more local, especially sort of seed and series A funds, when much more of the story is a story, frankly, than something you can point to as evidence that you're building a great company. Because relationships do matter. And this is, for better or for worse, a pretty network-driven business. And so having been part of the scene in LA for a while, it's exciting to see that that has grown tremendously even in the short time that I've been down here. So I'm optimistic on that front. Is it perfect? Definitely not. Are there things I'd change? For sure. But I have seen in my network of folks and others, more and more people moving here to do things that are not like entertainment, which is great. Like us in financial insurance. Exactly. But you know, so in that context, you brought up a couple of interesting about the state of LA and how a lot of funds are hiring dedicated people, but the transition really is for funds to actually, some are actually moving their entire groups down to Los Angeles. And then the other part that you mentioned was just like, just across the stack that the more capital you get across different stages, the more vibrant the ecosystem becomes. And that's totally right on. You also mentioned, but didn't actually say what the things were you would change. So you're inside of a big platform. There's basically two schools of thought for how like venture as an ecosystem moves from where it is now to where it's going. There seems to be a big generational shift happening as we speak in venture. How do you think about that inside from where you're sitting at Alpha Edison, but also just what things you really want to see moving forward as like a solving the problems that exist today in venture from the perspective of LA, which are so different than the problems that we face in SF? Look, I think in general, at a high level point, like what a cool time to be doing what we do. It's cheaper than ever to start a company. There's more capital interested in private investments. There's lots of tools and technology to make that happen. Like, I wish I were 22 right now. Why? Right? Like, how fun would that be? I think it's still true for us. But I think the, the next 10 years adventure and startup land are going to be so fun. And so I think this sort of world pause we're in right now 
is a great opportunity to try to fix these, these things. I love this conversation because I think there's a lot that can be done. I hate it because it's so hard. And you know, one of the issues with venture, obviously, is this business as an industry doesn't scale. Right? The way venture funds and returns and partnership and ownership works and usually how decisions are made doesn't scale very well, which is totally ironic because all the businesses we invest in are built to scale really, really well. But most venture businesses you know, are still super people-driven, require decision-making and require people to sign off on stuff. And people only have so much time in a way that doesn't scale. And so I think there's something to be done around the structure of the industry. There's obviously a bunch of stuff to do to fix who's making a lot of these decisions, which is probably where I'd, I'd start this conversation, just because there's a lot out there right now. And it's probably a fun place for you and I to go back and forth and talk about it. But with regard to women, with regard to minorities, like it's just totally baffling to me that we're still sort of defending that this is a thing that should happen. Like we're still in 2020 and people don't necessarily believe that diversity matters. Just like want to bang my head against the wall, right? Like those people, fine, like go search for talent in your very small pool. But the rest of us are going to search in this much bigger pool that has just as good, if not better ideas. Yeah. And also the biggest problem with the lack of diversity ends up falling into a statement that I've said multiple times on the podcast, which is the Bay Area is 46 miles of Silicon Valley surrounded by reality. And when you just have like an older generation of straight white dudes that are making decisions in a silo, you cannot solve real problems that actually affect a broader population. So you're artificially limiting your market size. You're seeing way less interesting companies and you never really get to invest in problems that change the world because they're not going to recognize when a really good problem comes across their desk because their pattern matching spidey senses will have missed it. You know what one tell that really frustrates me that I would encourage nobody listening to this to ever do is when uh, it's usually venture people, right? Or people in general where they're, they're like, oh, let me go ask my wife what she thinks about this idea or my daughter. And it's great. You should definitely do that. But like that should not be the basis for your decision making. If you're asking your wife or your daughter to determine the market size for this business, your job is to think more creatively around what this could possibly be, not just get one or two points of feedback. And it kind of just shows the narrow-mindedness of the thinking. So I always sigh a little bit inside when that happens. Yeah, yeah. I guess the proper expression for that would be, in today's vernacular, it would be called like a microaggression. I could see how that could potentially be well-intentioned of them trying to do like quote-unquote DD but that's really lazy of them because it doesn't actually get to a core understanding of what the problem is. It doesn't solve the biggest problem with how capital flows downhill to actually invest in these problems that are being overlooked. And so like something that could be perceived to be a well-intentioned action just has so many second degree consequences that end up with a stale industry that needs revision. And like there was a tweet that got sent by a HBS acquaintance of yours that gave me a chuckle. This is the second time this concept has come up on the podcast, but in a different form. And the tweet was from Ellen DeSilva. And the tweet is, I try to live every day with the confidence of a VC bro who just read two articles on a topic and is now a thought leader, which <laughs> both directly ties to the problem that you just outlined and the problem with venture capital as a whole. So what should we be doing to fix it? First of all, I love the tweet. I think it captures what a lot of people feel no matter your race or gender. And this is a complicated and hairy problem. I think there's plenty to be done that could help to try to get the most simplified answer that's good for a podcast. The one answer it as long as you want. 
<laughs> the broader solution I really like and think is actually quite simple is you've got to make more women and more underrepresented minorities, you've got to make them rich, whether that's with money or with relationships and network and connections. But in a world where you know, it's usually money, right? Power follows money. If there were much more balance around pay, around equity on cap tables, around just how you generally make, I'm going to say women, just for simplicity, but I mean... Yeah, from your own platform. Broader underrepresented founders, right? Yeah. Like, if you make them rich, the power decisions generally follow. And rich means personally or writing checks with somebody else's money. And I think the power shifts dramatically if that happens, because you don't have to go pitch you know, at-home nail business to a bunch of old white dudes. And so if there are people who are writing checks that are women... It's more likely that people who are not young white guys get found, get funded, and then therefore those founders go and make a lot of money and seed other founders, right? And the network just keeps building. That's a great point. And just being open to that, creating that flywheel, it's like a power is given, kind of like just looking at Alexis Ohenny and stepping off the board of Reddit. Like the people in power have to give the people who are not in power the opportunity to be successful. And so like, that's one of the biggest foundational issues is like empowering communities that are typically not empowered really takes like more moral character than what the average person has. So it just takes really quality people to do that. And what's cool is that a lot of the LPs are really driving these changes and they're forcing people to give up. When I say people give up power, I mean like 65-year-old white dudes that should retire. So like <laughs> when I say give up power, I use that in quotes and I say like, hiring like a woman principal so that they can invest in other things that they're just missing because they wouldn't be. And when you control their purse strings, like they're forced to make decisions for the people that don't have the same moral character as people that are doing it because they just see like the value creation. And there are so many articles that have come out about how women-led companies and diverse founders outperform their counterparts. And so it's also a good economic decision. Just people can't get out of their own way. I'm pretty excited for five-ish years from now when women out there now who have started companies, have material ownership in those companies, have some sort of exit that unlocks a whole new set of people who are writing angel checks, who are investing in funds, who are starting their own funds. I think structurally, that will be a really fantastic time. You know, I think too, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen AngelList roll out this idea of rolling funds. Who knows what will really happen there? But I think what it does is it enables people who don't have the ability or connections just because they haven't done it yet to raise a fund to just start somewhere. I think that structure enables a whole new set of people to get into this business that maybe don't have the same access, but can get it over time and are super qualified and talented, but just don't have it yet. And so I think that's a fun industry evolution that I'm excited to watch. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, that goes speaks to like the... Um... It's the strategy of like the uh, burn it down and start from zero for how do you create what this new version of venture looks like. You know, the flip side argument is how do you leverage the system that currently exists to like burn it down from the inside as opposed to like starting it from zero from the outside? Because it's very hard to get invited in, but it's much easier to treat it more like a Trojan horse where you start from the inside and work your way out, right? And I think that what you said really spoke to that story arc. It's the first time I've heard that so far from like, how do you change it? And that's really cool. I think the idea that burn it down, like there's just so many intertwined interests that doesn't feel realistic to me. It's still going to continue to be a thing, but something you and I have talked a lot about before, and I think you do a great job of encouraging people to figure out and do spare time when you're not starting this company is go start things. 
right? And I do think there is a ton of need to have new voices and there are people out there doing it in terms of emerging managers. And I think that is required in order to really get change. I think this idea that you sort of need permission or need to be hired in as partner is a too small of a way to look at it, right? There's just so much more capital out there that is looking for a solution here. And I think that will come. And rolling funds are one way to do it. You know, traditional fundraising is another. And I think the burn it down from the inside way to do it is enable people to get the experience and the reps and the track record and the relationships to go do that thing so that they can be a new voice in the ecosystem and chart a very different path. One thing I think about too, in terms of businesses we invest in, right? One of the things I tell founders all the time is when you're working in an industry that has high barriers to entry or something for a startup to frankly go compete with, then find a different basis for competition. Let's take in, like insurance or banking, right? Like you're not going to compete on cost of capital, but you could compete on better products or different distribution or some segmentation that's different. So if you go find a different basis of competition, that's the only way you're going to win because you're definitely not going to win around cost of capital. And so I think it's true with venture as well, like as an industry, as we look at it, right? You've got to find a different way to go compete with the 65-year-old white guys who have had this way of doing things. And they will continue to have success in that way of doing things, but there are plenty of other ways of doing things, whether it's building a network or on, on a podcast or through Twitter or through different relationships or things like that. I think there are plenty of other ways to go do that. 100%. And so then when you talk about different market segmentation, that goes back to an earlier point that you made, which is how do you convince the person with the power, whether that be an old white dude or whatever, like a lifelong venture capitalist that doesn't know anything about the Latin community and their market dynamics? How do you get them over the line? You know, the topic we wanted to cover today is building trust and how do you build relationships remotely? It actually kind of aligns to that because there's no real way for somebody that's never had exposure to a diverse community to diligence that community in a meaningful way. So how do you think through that in addition to obviously the next rabbit hole that we wanted to cover today, which is around building trust and relationships and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, first of all, recognizing that you don't know how to do it is the first step. So if there's that, that's good. And then doing research yourself or with people that you work with that maybe have more authenticity around space, right? You know, in the same way that you talk about gender, right? You talk about race or background or things like that. The data says one thing, doing surveys and going out and learning and actually understanding the market need is something you can do, something you can do in partnership with people who understand it better, which is usually the founder. But being open to something that's not something you identify with is, I think, a requirement in this business of venture. And if you're a founder who is talking to an investor that doesn't get it, it's probably time to find a different investor, right? Like That doesn't feel like a, a, a successful partnership over time. Uh, yeah. And that speaks to a whole other thing, which is for people that have never had access to the networks that you and I have had, like, how do you discover those people? Part of the opportunity for this is, you know, also an opportunity for people who I think are awesome to also say, like, call me, you have an idea. This is a person that you can trust in an industry that's historically very unfriendly. One of the things I've observed, which is, frankly, a reason to do things like this and write blogs and we now live in this world where we're mostly in our own four walls. <laughs> we don't really even see our coworkers every day we used to come into the office with, right? So our relationships with our 
coworkers are physically just as close as someone on Twitter I've never met before. And so I found myself in talking with others, the barrier I think is lowering. And so people building relationships, I think it's starting to mean a lot of different things. You know, that was sort of an interesting way for me to frame and think about not only should we think about depth of relationships we're building, but also maybe breadth. Like, is this a time where people are more interested than ever because they have the time probably and meeting with people they don't have direct relationships with or having a conversation or building some sort of relationship digitally that they probably sort of scuffed off or would have scuffed off in the past because they have dinners they're going to and people they're meeting and you know, their family and friends that they see all the time. We're just not there right now. So that's like how I think about breadth. Well, I mean, the venture capital job is a breadth job, foundationally, right? You know, well, over three years, I met 9,000 people that I had emails for, just like in my actual work CRM. And I was traveling like crazy, United 1K status, flying coach exclusively. And so it was not nice. (laughs) (laughs) And when you aren't on that, literally for me anyway, during that time, during that global loop, because I was also fundraising for a fund at that time, you just miss people and you start to just lose touch because you're not in regular cadence. You know, it's like a, one thing that I advise all the emerging managers that I work with that are going out for funds is like, you have to really meet LPs three times for them, like have three touch points of them for them to trust you and be like, what do you do? Especially when you don't want to like solicit them when you're pitching them. And so it's like, if you don't have the opportunity to go meet them, you're just out of mind. And that extrapolates all the way down to friends and even down to dating where it's like there have been people that, as you know, I was splitting time between SF and New York. I haven't caught up with any of my New York roommates since I left in Feb. I moved out of there in Feb and like these are people that like I care about a lot. And like I haven't chatted with any of them just because COVID there's just you you forget like you're just trying everyone's just uh, for me anyway, like I'm just trying to stay alive. You know what I mean? And just like try to stay sane. So from a breath perspective, it's killing me because like I feel very unstimulated. And so I've really invested heavily in other things to like take my mind off the fact that I'm not shaking a hundred hands a day. And so those are things like, I just bought a new surfboard. I am learning how to podcast. (laughs) I taught myself Spanish. I'm doing everything in my power to stay sane by keeping busy. And from a dev perspective, like you just miss the touch points with people and that consistency of human connection, you lose the depth from that. Then that's for me, the more sad part because in venture, like I said, you meet 5,000 people a year. But at the end of the day, how many people at the end of that time are you actually going to consider like that person's going to be a lifelong friend of mine? Two, three, if you're lucky. And like I can go back year by year and say like that was the one person that stood out to me, right? From 2016 when I joined venture. And so I really miss that being able to have the touch points with people. So that's my breath. Which goes to before in a pre-COVID land, building really deep relationships with somebody was not obvious either. Like having a true friend or a true person you can count on, that was obviously fraught with different issues. Meeting them in person and sharing a meal and you know talking about really important and challenging things and learning what really drives them is one of many ways to do that. And in this world where you can't really go meet with somebody face-to-face for an extended period of time, especially if they're in a different city, we have to find new ways to build relationships with people. And I've asked this question to a bunch of different people and the best about how they're doing it, because you know I've been trying to crowdsource the answer here, because I've found, at least in the beginning, I don't think I was doing a very good job. And I think it came down to like sort of how I was feeling about it. Like I didn't really feel the same way that I felt before. 
and you know, the opportunity to build relationships in this way. And you know, the best response I got was this founder I work a lot with who was just like, you got to show up. You got to show up to conversations in ways that are really open and authentic and maybe more open than you had been in the past because you don't get the same clues around body language and whatever it is. And that just really struck me as we can go through our life zooming and talking on phone calls and doing our dishes at the same time we do whatever meeting. Or you can like really show up and learn about somebody and ask them deep questions and sort of push a relationship forward. Absolutely. And like venture capitalists are a lot of times extroverts because they're basically paid to be extroverts, right? And when you can't, for me anyway, when you can't feel somebody's body language sitting across from you and like that gives you energy, how do you function through the world? And now that I'm on the other side, on the founder side, maintaining the appearance of <laughs> excitedness all the time when people can't feel your energy in the same room is is a challenge we're working through now. And it's one of those things that's very difficult. And like then the other deep rabbit hole, which I haven't covered yet, is how venture is very isolating as an industry because like it's very difficult to date, mainly because like you can't date founders because that's like a me too situation waiting to happen. In San Francisco, the pool is already limited. And then as a result of that, you end up basically like you're limited to other VCs who are also emotionally unstable. And so then like, what do you do? And so it's one of those things where it's like you artificially limiting your friend group that a job that is inherently extroverted where you meet 5,000 people a year, you end up artificially at the same time, basically without knowing it, limiting your friend group to this very cottage industry. And now that I'm on the other side as a founder, I had this conversation with another founder the other day. And he's like, Nathaniel, like, you've seen now from the behavior, now that you're on the other side of the table, that the majority of those people were never really your friends. They were really just there for the transaction and they were never your friends. I described them as good, good people. How are you doing good? How are you doing good? And it took him to call that out to me that they were never really my friends in the first place. And that like broke my heart, but it's the truth. It was a real true realization that there are so few real people in tech and venture now because everyone's so focused on their own journey because it's so competitive in the industry that to find people that are true and like want to build other people up is so rare and you just keep them as close to you as you possibly can. And so that's the other side, the other, other side of like, how do you maintain relationships in tech and venture when like they're inherently adversarial? It's a totally funny world because we're all incented to sort of find the next hidden gem or whatever it is. And therefore that means distributing time broadly and sometimes in rare occasions going very deeply. I also think it's one of these industries too where we're supposed to figure out something that's not obvious. All of us are searching for interesting paths forwards and you know companies we meet, we need to buy in and build conviction that something that wasn't true in the past will be true going forward. And then we need to convince those at our firm about it and our LPs about it. And then over time you've got to convince more and more and more people who need to invest in later rounds and who need to be customers. And there's always the naysayer and it's easy to say no, right? It's easy even amongst close friends or a firm to see how it won't work because most of the time it doesn't work. So it's easy to see how, how it won't work. And so trying to stay positive and seeing what could be because what we need to believe is something that could be rather than why it won't work. And so it's this funny psychological like mind bend around you're convincing everyone that something they don't see will be true down the line and also helping this founder build it 
and everyone's telling you no. And so not only do you have a lot of quote friends, but also a lot of people that you need to now convince of something and they're trying to convince you of something and it's just sort of super twisty. Yeah, there's like multiple parts of that, right? Where it's like, so like Catherine, my old boss at Wildcat, she was a very close mentor of mine. And the thing that I took away from our conversations together, one of the key ones was, of all the companies you can invest in in the world, there's a very few that are venture backable. And within that, there's a very few that fit your timing and your thesis, right? And so that's the first problem. But the other problem is like venture capitalists are paid to be optimists, but that really conflicts with the fact that they're also asset managers. And so the concept of being an optimist and being an asset manager often do not align. And that prevents them from going out and trying to solve real problems that may solve macroeconomic problems, whether it be in our case, elder care or food supply chain or whatever it is, right? That is something that I believe is a systemic thing that needs to change. I don't know how to do that. I mean, I think the archetype is probably future ventures, you know, the Jurvetson Mariana Sanko fund where it's a longer time horizon. So instead of 10 plus two plus two, it's, I think it's 15 plus five plus five different fee structure. And so like, how do we change the incentive for asset managers to avoid that conflict of the friction around the decision making to solve like problems that really could have a better outcome for the world. Something to think about. Now, one of the things that I've also used as a helpful tool is if you reshape or take something to the extreme, how does that affect your way of thinking? If humans lived for 200 to 500 years, things would be very different, right? These 15-year funds are easier to comprehend. But would you live your life in the same way? Would you treat relationships the same way? Would you treat marriage the same way or jobs, right? If you push something beyond what makes sense now, would you change your own behavior in a way? Or could you create incentives in an industry that feel more aligned? Yeah. And I don't know what that is, but one of the funds that I'm starting to advise is deep tech. And I'm super excited about it, mainly because it's a seed stage fund it's going to cut huge checks. And I could not be more excited about it because it just flips the paradigm of like, this is the risk we're willing to take because we understand the mechanisms that have to go in to these type of problems that are not just a slightly faster database. So like, maybe it's that, maybe that's like the first step, but who knows anymore. And I think we'll reflect on this conversation in like five years from now and we'll see hopefully it's more than 7% of funds are managed by women. Hopefully it's more than well, I think the stat that just came out from PitchBook was 30% of equity is owned by women. Hopefully it's more. Hopefully we can get above the 2% of, or I think the stat that just came out was 0.2 non-white women founders, something like that, that just came out. So long way to go to make a better Silicon Valley. I'm looking forward to those days. Obviously we're all part of it and doing everything we can enable others to go get that. To your point earlier, I guess I'll say it directly so people can hear and listen. Like, please reach out to me if I can be helpful in any way. This is a weird and twisty world and I'd love to help. So we'd be remiss to not bring this up. There's been two really interesting and pretty powerful pieces written by people, women of leadership team seniority around two well-known one public companies, Carta and Pinterest. And you know, it's striking that they came out one after another. It's also, it's also striking that their message is relatively similar, which is this culture around People who are early at a company before it's frankly really even a company, often a bunch of white bros who hire their friends end up building a culture that is unintentional, right? Whereas often great founders build really intentional cultures. Sometimes when things go really fast, they don't necessarily do that or think they need to do that. 
I think it's clear to me from both of these that it's incredibly important to do from your first employee. And so the things that end up happening are, you know, decisions are made in a back room by a couple of people. And then there's this, what I think to be a pretty weak excuse around, you know, we're trying to move fast. I think that's super short-sighted and not the right answer in the long term, obviously. And when you bring in people who think differently, that should be great, right? That should lead to better outcomes. That should lead to a stronger company in the long term. And often there are rocky points through that, but I think that's true for making any great decision. And so the fact that it's pretty systemic from people I talk to, from experiences that I've seen, that this keeps happening. And the fact that some people are doing something about it, I think is great. I think the fact that it's still happening is a huge problem and we need to tackle it and talk about it in ways that you know, you'd solve other problems and actually drive action in a way that sometimes doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. So that really touches on what happens when the company is already at scale. I've been part of shitty cultures before. The biggest problem between where things were when I was an operator as an engineer and where they are today is that you could not in the past publicly expose bad culture. But since 2016 with Susan Fowler and Uber, it's become socially acceptable for people to basically out shitty employers and shitty cultures. And a lot of people end up basically holding their thumbs and trying not to say what happened at their prior company for why they left or why they got fired. And that ultimately ends up being more detrimental to an employee's career than the actual shitty culture in the first place because they can't, it makes it very difficult to get a new job. You know, I'm glad that it's now become socially acceptable to out these big companies and call out shitty culture and not having to wait until it gets to the press and controlling your own story. So that's kind of the, the first thing, but it's by then it's already too late. So how do you fix that from the beginning, right? So how do you start from day zero and move that forward? That's the real question, right? So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or how you do that, but the Carter reports that Emily Kramer, the former VP of marketing there who just sued Carta, she was responsible for these diversity reports. She highlights that there's just not enough women in positions where they get the equity in the first place. So they're being set up to fail from the beginning. And so I don't know how we fix that, but I'd love to get your thoughts about how to work through that. And I know that she partnered with your old investor group and hashtag angels. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I think founders who want to get this right will take this up at the very beginning of the business, whether it's around founding team or first employees, not having a diverse team and then trying to go fix that is much, much harder. People of diverse backgrounds don't want to be the only one in the room. That's so lonely. And having been in that position a bunch of times, there are a lot of other great places to spend your time for people in this world. And somebody once told me, which I thought was a great analogy about women in boardrooms, right? If there's one, they're a token. If there's two, it's somebody that you can go to the bathroom with during breaks. And if there's three, it's finally a real conversation. And it can lead to discussions and disagreements and better perspectives that are not tokenizing in ways that should be how people work. I was thinking about what I wanted to say on this, and it strikes me that I forgot to tell you in the most respectful way, I think I have beef with your podcast name, which is Making Venture Great Again, which is to say that for most people who are not sort of well-networked white guys, like venture was never great to begin with. This is an opportunity, and I think what you've done really well around sort of how you frame Venture 3.0 is if we can get this right, hopefully we don't have to keep having this conversation around how to improve things, right? I think it'd be awesome if we could make ourselves all obsolete and not have to keep talking about this in this way, but certainly there's a lot of work to do and a lot of ways to fix it. 
I think tactically some good ideas that I've heard. One, being focused and starting about this in the beginning. Two, I think it's great that companies are tracking and releasing gender ratios. I think that needs to be specifically clear about who's making decisions. And people inside the organization notice and care that if the whole team is not diverse, like it's great that you have a lot of diverse people at your company, but if they're not in one's decision-making authority, it's really hard to get things done and have sort of the respect around that you're doing a good job around that. One example that I heard in the last couple of weeks that I thought was really great was groups that are focused on this and notice it's an issue. They project manage it like they do any other project. They meet every other week. People have accountability and results. And you know, if someone's running into an issue where there's a hiring situation and they don't feel like they have the right people or they need help reaching the right people, then they all sort of work together and solve that one tactical issue and try to make it something they can manage rather than you know this big ephemeral problem. Yeah, great comment on the name. I didn't even give it two cents. I mean, it's so true, but I had never even given it a second thought when I put the name on the podcast. It was obviously meant to be a play on words of the nature of just our zeitgeist right now as a country. You know, it's something that I think is true for a lot of people in different minority situations. And so just making room and the conversation be better because of it is a really good opportunity. And like your commentary is so appropriate because the theme of the podcast really has become like Silicon Valley tech and venture 3.0. What does it look like in the future? And so it's not great again in the context of what was great in the past. It's great again in reference to what could be in the future. And so it's like that inherently ties to what the message is for Venture 3.0. So yes, that's part of the huge problem with Venture, which is like part of the platform for the podcast is to call it out and say like, in the past, it was shitty. And in the future, it's hopefully going to be better. And here's how. And so like, I appreciate that a lot. The second thing is like at the beginning. So you mentioned from the beginning, it has to be part of the culture. And so like, I don't need to tell you this, but founder market fit is such a huge part of the venture diligence process. And when you're trying to identify founding teams that you think will work together well, because that's really all you're judging, especially in the seed and pre-seed stage. Very, very difficult to see non-homogenous teams because those are the groups of people that they trust as their co-founding unit inherently. And so I've purposely always tried to go outside of that and try to hire the best people. But it's very difficult to find people because they're just pulling from their close network to found companies. And a lot of times their close networks mirrors their own background as they go to start companies because these companies are like marriages. They can last 10, 12 years if they're going well. So very difficult. And so like that inherently creates a source of friction for that. And I don't know how to solve that inherently. I don't think it has to be. I think your point is valid, right? People want to work with people that they trust. But why can't people you trust be people who don't look and act like you? Right. It's the nature of kind of where we are in terms of like how bad it's gotten. But in an ideal world where diversity exists broadly, you have friends and colleagues and people who are your mentors and your employees that you pull, right? Like in an ideal world, that shouldn't necessarily be true. And so I think just being really intentional about it in the beginning, and this will take time, it's not going to happen overnight, but being extremely intentional in the beginning and seeking out people who are different from you often do make the best founding teams. People who may have known each other for a long time or may not have different skill sets and know they can work together for a shorter period of time or something like that. So I don't think it's impossible. I do think it's hard and I'm hopeful there's a path forward. Yeah, I'm not saying it's impossible and I appreciate your commentary there, but my pushback is like, so you know my co-founder, Karin, like when he and I were considering working together, 
I had tried to invest in him for three prior years. And so when he called me to say, hey, like I'm thinking about, you know, what's next? What are you working on? Like, I was like, yes, I have to work with you. So although we come from very different backgrounds and very different networks, you know, it was one of those things where he and I had known each other for almost four years before there was an opportunity to work together. And so while that is inherently diversity, but that was a long time making. And so in the Silicon Valley, that really glorifies youth. How many people come from that experience to go do that? And so it's more just like a commentary of like, yes, I want that to exist. But on the flip side, I haven't observed it in practice. Yeah, I'm hopeful that in 10 years from now, some future founder who's in the same position as you has that same experience. And then Karin happens to be a female or the founder is a female and her person she's been trying to invest in for four years is a male or, you know, is from some underrepresented background. It's obviously not where we are now, but I'm hopeful with effort we will get there. So yeah. And so like that obviously creates that equity disparity. We talked about like the Carter reports that Emily put together while like super informative, the biggest takeaway that I had was that women did not get into startups early enough. And by that, I mean, get into the roles where the risk is high enough to be awarded those like really super large equity grants. And even if they were, they were already getting like 70% of what their male peers were getting. So it's like a double hit. So like that recruiting process as co-founder teams at the beginning certainly solves that. But the other half of it is like empowering people to take those risks. And there is like a whole nother rabbit hole we could go down around how irrational it is to start a company just from a financial perspective and the safety net aspect, or whether it's just like the risk profile to go start a company with all the unknowns. And so it's just how can we help underrepresented people that would be considering starting companies but aren't take that leap? And then how do we train people to get into roles where they can go take that leap? Because as a business person, I was overlooked for co-founding teams multiple times because they didn't need me out of the gate. And in the Carter report, they show that the highest percentage of C1 executives that are women is in the CMO role. And you just don't need that out of the gate for many startups. So how do you make the transition to roles like CFO, COO, and CTO, where those roles are now woefully underrepresented by women and try to get people more senior into those kind of roles as earlier. And so that was the big takeaway that I had from the Carter reports. And then the gender reporting and who makes the decisions. I was reading Francoise's article from Pinterest and her comment was actually like, who gives a shit about the reports? The more important thing was actually the retention, which is never published. And she mentioned that those stats across basically every single tech company are garbage. And so that's actually like even more important than who's making the decision. It's actually what kind of culture did you create inside of the company to actually keep people because hiring them is great and all, but do you actually set them up for success when they get there? Yeah, super important. You know, in, in her case, it sounded like she wasn't really set up. I don't know the details. Others can speak to that better. But it sounded from the article that she wasn't really set up for success. And so it makes sense that she didn't want to compromise on certain things. She feels are sort of her superpowers that it wasn't the right fit for her. And so setting people up for success, being transparent, I think just goes a really long way. And I think the excuse around we got to move fast is just so short-sighted. And I think there are ways to do it while being transparent and still moving quickly. The other thing that I have a really hard time with and is frankly kind of triggering for me is when people say there's, you know, quote, a pipeline problem. It may be true that there are certain degrees that men and women and our people from underrepresented backgrounds are not going into, but all of that doesn't excuse the fact that you're not properly interviewing people or setting people up for success or recognizing bias in certain decision making. 
And if this is important to you, like any other thing, you will find a way to fix it, right? You will reach out to folks. I, being a woman, I have a lot of really talented women in my network and I see it every day. I saw a really interesting Twitter thread the other day where there was a black founder who listed 30 or so of his colleagues he thought were great because he's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me that people don't think that there's great talent out there. Like, here's a list, go hire them. And so... You know, I think it's important to shed light on other people, share networks in ways if people don't have access to them because there are people out there and this pipeline thing is the worst. I think the question for you, Britt, is on your own journey to you know, learning to stand up for yourself on this path, you had some amazing mentors and maybe you can speak to that journey and your own story for the people listening. For sure. So when I was in business school, I had the opportunity to work with a group called Hashtag Angels who were all early employees at Twitter, all of whom or women when they started their own investment collective. And this was quite a few years ago. And I still greatly admire my time working with them and every very cool thing they've done since. But in that sort of summer internship experience, they were the first people I ever heard articulate this issue around what they called the gap table, which is the disparity between equity often for women and men. And tracking racial disparity is even harder. It's slightly easier to track gender. So that's sort of the data we have, unfortunately. But they were very early in identifying that that was an issue and was really transformational for how I think about this stuff. And going back to this issue around making women rich, right? Like you really can't do that without having a sense of equality around equity in the cap table. And so something I have never forgotten and continue to push for now. And with that, Britt, do you have any other things you want to cover before we uh, sign off today? I don't think so. Thank you for having me. Rock and roll. That was really fun. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate the time. 